by David Boom. On dialogue. Perhaps we could begin by talking about what I mean by dialogue. We will begin with that rather than with trying actually to have a dialogue, since if you try to begin that way, everybody will wonder what is a dialogue and whether we are having one actually. Therefore we will be going off the point. So we will discuss dialogue for a while, what is its nature? I give a meaning to the word, dialogue that is somewhat different from what is commonly used. The derivations of words often help to suggest a deeper meaning. Dialogue comes from the Greek word dialogos. Logos means, the word, or in our case we would think of the, meaning of the word. And dia means, through, it doesn't mean to. A dialogue can be among any number of people, not just two. Even one person can have a sense of dialogue within himself, if the spirit of the dialogue is present. The picture of image that this derivation suggests is of a stream of meaning flowing among and through us and between us. This will make possible a flow of meaning in the whole group, out of which will emerge some new understanding. It's something new which may not have been in the starting point at all. It's something creative. And this shared meaning is the glue or cement that holds people and societies together. Contrast this with the word discussion, which has the same root as percussion and concussion. It really means to break things up. It emphasizes the idea of analysis, where there may be many points of view. Discussion is almost like a ping-pong game, where people are batting the ideas back and forth and the object of the game is to win or to get points for yourself. Possibly you will take up somebody else's ideas to back up your own, you may agree with some and disagree with others but the basic point is to win the game. That's very frequently the case in the discussion. In the dialogue, however, nobody is trying to win. Everybody wins if anybody wins. There is a different sort of spirit to it. In the dialogue, there is no attempt to gain points, or to make your particular view prevail. Rather, whenever any mistake is discovered on the part of anybody, everybody gains. It's a situation called win-win, in which we are not playing a game against each other but with each other. In the dialogue, everybody wins. Clearly, a lot of what is called dialogue is not dialogue in the way that I am using the word. For example, people at the United Nations have been having what are often considered to be dialogues, but these are very limited. They are more like discussions, or perhaps trade, offs or negotiations, than dialogues. The people who take part are not really open to questioning their fundamental assumptions. They are trading off minor points, like negotiating whether we have more or less nuclear weapons. But the whole question of two different systems is not being seriously discussed. It's taken for granted that you can't talk about that, that nothing will ever change that. Consequently their discussions are not serious, not deeply serious. A great deal of what we call discussion is not deeply serious in the sense that there are all sorts of things which are held to be non-negotiable and not touchable, 
and people don't even want to talk about them. That is part of our trouble. Now, why do we need dialogue? People have difficulty communicating even in small groups. But in a group like this of 30 or 40, many may find it very hard to communicate unless there is a set purpose, or unless somebody is leading it. Why is that? For one thing, everybody has different assumptions and opinions. They are basic assumptions, not merely superficial assumptions, such as assumptions about the meaning of life, about your own self-interest, your country's interest, or your religious interest, about what you really think is important. And these assumptions are defended when they are challenged. People frequently can't resist defending them, and they tend to defend them with an emotional charge. We'll discuss that in more detail later, but I'll give you an example now. We organized a dialogue in Israel a number of years ago. At one stage the people were discussing politics, and somebody said, just in passing, Zionism is creating a great difficulty in good relations between Jews and Arabs. It is the principal barrier that's in the way. He said it very quietly. Then suddenly somebody else couldn't contain himself and jumped up. He was full of emotion. His blood pressure was high and his eyes were popping out. He said, without Zionism the country would fall to pieces. That fellow had one basic assumption, and the other person had another one. And those two assumptions were really in conflict. Then the question is, what can you do? You see, those are the kind of assumptions that are causing all the trouble politically all over the world. And the case I just described is relatively easier than some of the assumptions that we have to handle in politics. The point is that we have all sorts of assumptions, not only about politics or economics or religion, but also about what we think an individual should do, or what life is all about, and so forth. We could also call these assumptions, opinions. An opinion is an assumption. The word, opinion, is used in several senses. When a doctor has an opinion, that's the best assumption that he can make based on the evidence. He may then say, okay, I'm not quite sure, so let's get a second opinion. In that case, if he's a good doctor, he does not react to defend his assumption. If the second opinion turns out to be different from his, he doesn't jump up with an emotional charge, such as the fellow did on the question of Zionism, and say, how can you say such things? That doctor's opinion would be an example of a rational sort of opinion. But most are not of that nature, mostly they are defended with a strong reaction. In other words, a person identifies himself with them. They are tied up with his investment in self-interest and all that. It is important to see that the different opinions that you have are the result of past thought, all your experiences, what other people have said, and what not. That is all programmed into your memory. You may then identify with those opinions and react to defend them. But it doesn't make sense to do this. If the opinion is right, it doesn't need such a reaction. 
And if it is wrong, why should you defend it? It is as if you yourself are under attack when your opinion is challenged. Opinions thus tend to be experienced as truths, even though they may only be your own assumptions and your own background. You got them from your teacher, your family, or by reading, or in yet some other way. Ten for one reason or another you are identified with them, and you defend them. Different people coming from different backgrounds typically have different basic assumptions and opinions. In this group here you will probably find a great many different assumptions and opinions of which we are not aware at the moment. That is generally so in any group. It is a matter of culture. In the overall culture there are vast numbers of opinions and assumptions which help make up that culture. And there are also subcultures that are somewhat different from one another according to ethic group or to economic situation, or to race, religion, or thousands of other things. People will come to a gathering like this from somewhat different cultures or subcultures, with different assumptions and opinions. And they may not realize it, but they have some tendency to defend their assumptions and opinions reactively against evidence that they are not right, or simply a similar tendency to defend them against somebody who has another opinion. If we defend opinions in this way, we are not going to be able to have a dialogue. And we are often unconsciously defending our opinions. We don't usually do it on purpose. At times we may be conscious that we are defending them, but mostly we are not. We just feel that something is so true that we can't avoid trying to convince this stupid person how wrong he is to disagree with us. Now, that seems the most natural thing in the world. It seems that that's inevitable. Yet if you think of it, we can't really organize a good society if we go on that basis. I mean, That's the way democracy is supposed to work, but it hasn't. If everybody has a different opinion, it will be merely a struggle of opinions. And the one who is the strongest will win. It may not necessarily be the right one. It may be that none of them are right. Therefore, we won't be doing the right thing when we try to get together. This problem arises whether we meet here or legislators try to get together, or businessmen try to get together, or whatever. If we all had to do a job together, we would likely find that each one of us would have different opinions and assumptions, and thus we would find it hard to do the job. The temperature could go way up. In fact, there are people facing this problem in large corporations. The top executives may all have different opinions, hence they can't get together. So the company doesn't work efficiently, it starts to lose money and goes under. There are some people who are trying to form groups where top business executives can talk together. If politicians would do that, it would be very good. Religious people would be the hardest to get together. The assumptions of the different religions are so firmly embedded that I don't know of any case of two religions, or even sub-groups of any given religion, where they ever got together once they had split. The Christian Church, for instance, 
has been talking about trying to get together for ages and it stays about the same all the time. They talk and they appear to get a little bit closer, and then it never happens. They talk about unity and oneness and love, and all that, but the other assumptions are more powerful. They are programmed into us. Some religious people are trying to get together. They are really sincere, they are as serious as they can be, but it seems that they cannot do it. Scientists also get into the same situation. Each one may hold to a different view of the truth, so they can't get together. Or they may have different self-interests. A scientist who is working for a company that produces pollution may have a certain self-interest in proving that the pollution is not dangerous. And somebody else might have self-interest in proving that it is dangerous. And perhaps then somewhere there is an unbiased scientist who tries to judge it all. Science is supposed to be dedicated to truth in fact, and religion is supposed to be dedicated to another kind of truth and to love. But people's self-interest and assumptions take over. Now, we're not trying to judge these people. Something is happening, which is that assumptions or opinions are like computer programs in people's minds. And those programs take over against the best of intentions. They produce their own intentions. Besides that, you will find other problems in trying to have a dialogue in a group of this or any size. Some people want to assert themselves. That's their way of going about things. They talk easily and they become dominant. They may have an image of themselves as dominant, and they get a certain amount of security out of it, a lift out of it. Other people, however, do not have such great self-esteem in this area. They tend to hold back, especially when they see somebody who is dominant. They are afraid that they'll make fools of themselves, or something of the kind. There are various roles that people adopt. Some people adopt the dominant role, some adopt the role of the weak powerless person who can be dominated. They sort of work together, with each other. Those, roles, which are really based on assumptions and opinions, will also interfere with the operation of dialogue. So a person has built some assumptions about himself, whether it's one way or the other. Also, since his childhood people have told him that that's what he is, that he is this way or that way. He has had bad experiences or good experiences, and it all built up. These are some of the problems which will arise when we try to have a dialogue. We can say that a group of about 20 to 40 people is almost a microcosm of the whole society, and has a lot of different opinions and assumptions. It is possible, though, to have a dialogue with one person or with two, three, of four, or you can have the attitude of the dialogue by yourself as you weigh all the opinion without deciding. But a group that is too small doesn't work very well. If five or six people get together, they can usually adjust to each other so that they don't say the things that upset each other, they get a cozy adjustment. People can easily be very polite to each other and avoid the issues that may cause trouble.
and if there is a confrontation between two or more people in such a small group, it seems very hard to stop it. It gets stuck. In a logger group like this, we may well start out politely. After a while, though, people can seldom continue to avoid all the issues that would be troublesome. The politeness falls away pretty soon. In a group of less than about 20 it may not, because people get to know each other and know the rough edges that they have to avoid. They can take it all into account. It's not too much. But in a group this size, it is too much. So when you raise the number to about 20, something different begins to happen. And 40 people is about as many as you can conveniently arrange in a circle, or you might put two circles concentrically. In that size group, you begin to get what may be called a microculture. You have enough people coming in from different subcultures so that they are a sort of microcosm of the whole culture. And then the question of culture, the collectively shared meaning, begins to come in. That is crucial, because the collectively shared meaning is very powerful. The collective thought is more powerful than the individual thought. In fact, the individual thought is mostly the result of collective thought and of interaction with other people. The language is entirely collective, and most of the thoughts in it are. Everybody does his own thing to those thoughts, he makes a contribution. But very few change them very much. The power of the group goes up much faster than the number of people. I've said elsewhere that it could be compared to a laser. Ordinary light is called incoherent, which means that it is going in all sorts of directions, and the light waves are not in phase with each other so they don't build up. But a laser produces a very intense beam which is coherent. The light waves build up strength because they are all going in the same direction. This beam can do all sorts of things that ordinary light cannot. Now, you could say that our ordinary thought in society is incoherent, it is going in all sorts of directions, with thoughts conflicting and cancelling each other out. But if people were to think together in a coherent way, it would have tremendous power. That's the suggestion. If we have a dialogue situation, a group which has sustained dialogue for quite a while in which people get to know each other, and so on then we might have such a coherent movement of thought. Coherent movement of communication. It would be coherent not only at the level we recognize, but at the tacit level, at the level for which we have only a vague feeling. That would be more important. Tacit means that which is unspoken, which cannot be described, like the tacit knowledge required to ride a bicycle. It is the actual knowledge, and it may be coherent or not. I am proposing that thought, to think, is actually a subtle tacit process. The concrete process of thinking is very tacit. The meaning is basically tacit. And what we can say explicitly is only a very small part of it. I think we all realize that we do almost everything by this sort of tacit knowledge. Thought is emerging from the tacit ground, and any fundamental change in thought will come from the tacit ground.
So if we are communicating at the tacit level, then maybe thought is changing. The tacit process is common. It is shared. The sharing is not merely the explicit communication and the body language and all that, which are part of it, but there is also a deeper tacit process which is common. I think the whole human race knew this for a million years, and then in 5,000 years of civilization we have lost it, because our societies got too big to carry it out. But now we have to get started again, because it has become urgent that we communicate. We have to share our consciousness and to be able to think together, in order to do intelligently whatever is necessary. If we begin to confront what's going on in a group like this, we sort of have the nucleus of what's going on in all society. When you are by yourself you miss quite a bit of that. Or even one-on-one you don't really get it. You could say that generally our culture goes in for large groups of people for two reasons. One is for entertainment and fun. The other is to get a useful job done. Now, I'm going to propose that in the dialogue we are not going to have any agenda, we are not going to try to accomplish any useful thing. As soon as we try to accomplish a useful purpose or goal, we will have an assumption behind it as to what is useful, and that assumption is going to limit us. Different people will think different things are useful. And that's going to cause trouble. We may say, do we want to save the world? Or, do we want to run a school? Or, do we want to make money? Whatever it may be. That's also going to be one of the problems in corporate dialogues. Will they ever give up the notion that they are there primarily to make a profit? If they could, this would be a real transformation of mankind. I think that many business executives in certain companies are feeling unhappy and really want to do something, not merely to save the company. It's not that all of them are money-rubbing or exclusively profit-oriented. What I am suggesting is that in dialogue we do not have an agenda and we are not trying to accomplish anything useful. Nor are we going to have a leader. Now, that's a harder problem. People will tend to say, okay, we have no agenda. We're not solving a problem. At least somebody will tell us what to do. The whole society has been organized that way, to believe that we can't function without these leaders. But maybe we can. The idea behind dialogue has been developed by a number of people. It is becoming quite a common thing, or at least more common than it was. This idea seems to be growing in society. We could say that the time is ripe for it, and people are beginning to take it up. Now, the way we start a dialogue group is usually by talking about dialogue, talking it over, discussing why we're doing it, what it means, and so forth. I don't think it is wise to start a group before people have gone into all that, at least somewhat. You can. But then you'll have to trust that the group will continue, and that these questions will come out later. So if you are thinking of meeting in a group, one way which I suggest is to have a discussion or a seminar about dialogue for a while, 
and those who are interested can then go on to have the dialogue. And you mustn't worry too much whether you are or are not having dialogue, that's one of the blocks. It may be mixed. A basic notion for a dialogue would be for people to sit in a circle. Such a geometric arrangement doesn't favor anybody. It allows for direct communication. In principle, the dialogue should work without any leader and without any agenda. Of course, we are used to leaders and agendas, so if we were to start a meeting here without a leader, start talking and have no agenda, no purpose, I think we would find a great deal of anxiety in not knowing what to do. Thus one of the things would be to work through that anxiety, to face it. In fact, we know by experience that if people do this for an hour or two they do get through it and start to talk more freely. It may be useful to have a facilitator to get the group going, who keeps a watch on it for a while and sort of explains what's happening from time to time, and that kind of thing. But his function is to work himself out of a job. Now, that may take time. It may be that people must meet regularly and sustain the dialogue. That form might be to meet week after week, or bi-weekly or whatever, and sustain it a long time, a year of two or more. In that period, things we mentioned would come out. And people would begin to learn really to depend less and less on the facilitator, at least that's the idea behind it. That's the suggestion. Of course. It's an experiment. We can't guarantee that it is going to happen. But that is what takes place in any new venture. You consider all the evidence, you consider what's the best idea, what to say about it, what your theories about it are, and then you go ahead and try it. Some time ago there was an anthropologist who lived for a long while with a North American tribe. It was a small group of about this size. The hunter-gatherers have typically lived in groups of 20 to 40. Agricultural group units are much larger. Now, from time to time that tribe met like this in a circle. They just talked and talked and talked, apparently to no purpose. They made no decisions. There was no leader. And everybody could participate. There may have been wise men or wise women who were listened to a bit more, the older ones, but everybody could talk. The meeting went on, until it finally seemed to stop for no reason at all and the group dispersed. Yet after that, everybody seemed to know what to do, because they understood each other so well. Then they could get together in smaller groups and do something or decide things. In this large group we are not going to decide what to do about anything. This is crucial. Otherwise we are not free. We must have an empty space where we are not obliged to do anything, nor to come to any conclusions, nor to say anything or not say anything. It's open and free. It's an empty space. Occupied is the opposite of leisure. It's full. So we have here a kind of empty space where anything may come in, and after we finish, we just empty it. We are not trying to accumulate anything. That's one of the points about a dialogue. As a friend of mine used to say, 
the cup has to be empty to hold something. When a group is new, in general people talk around the point for a while. In all human relations nowadays, people generally have a way of not directly facing anything. They talk around things, avoiding the difficulties. This practice will probably continue within any group such as this. If you keep the group going for a while though, that tendency begins to break down. At a dialogue one evening a fellow spoke up, saying, Okay, we're all talking about philosophy. Can I read this nice bit of philosophy I brought? And some people said, No. So he didn't read it. It seemed a bit of a shock, but it worked out. It all has to be worked out. People will come to a group with different interests and assumptions. In the beginning they may have negotiation, which is a very preliminary stage of dialogue. In other words, if people have different approaches, they have to negotiate somehow. However, that is not the end of dialogue. It is the beginning. Negotiation involves finding a common way of proceeding. Now, if you only negotiate, you don't get very far, although some questions do have to be negotiated. A great deal of what nowadays is typically considered to be dialogue tends to focus on negotiation, but as we said, that is a preliminary stage. People are generally not ready to go into the deeper issues when they first have what they consider to be a dialogue. They negotiate, and that's about as far as they get. When Bush and Gorbachev meet, for example, negotiation should really be only a beginning to what they ought to be doing. Negotiation is trading off, adjusting to each other and saying, Okay, I see your point. I see that that is important to you. Let's find a way that would satisfy both of us. I will give in a little on this, and you give in a little on that. And then we will work something out. Now, that's not really a close relationship, but it begins to make it possible to get going. We have been saying that people in any group will bring to it their assumptions, and as the group continues meeting, those assumptions will come up. Then what is called for is to suspend those assumptions, so that you neither carry them out nor suppress them. You don't believe them, nor do you disbelieve them. You don't judge them as good or bad. You simply see what they mean, not only your own, but the other people's as well. We are not trying to change anybody's opinion. When this meeting is over, Somebody may or may not change his opinion. This is part of what I consider dialogue, for people to realize what is on each other's minds without coming to any conclusions or judgments. In the dialogue we have to sort of weigh the question a little, ponder it a little, feel it out. I'm going to suggest the way it ought to work. Assumptions will come up. And if you hear somebody else who has an assumption that seems outrageous to you, the natural response might be to get angry, or get excited, or to react in some other way. But suppose you suspend that activity. That means that it is sort of there in front of you. You are not suppressing it, not carrying it out, not believing it or disbelieving it, 
you are simply seeing the meaning of your assumption along with the other persons. You may not even have known that you had an assumption. Because he came up with the opposite one that you find out that you have one. You may uncover other assumptions, but we are all suspending them and looking at them all, seeing what they mean. The first thing is to take in all the opinions. You have to notice your own reactions of hostility, or whatever, and you can see by the way people are behaving what their reactions are. You may find, as with anger, that it could go so far that the meeting could blow up, although I think that this group may have become so integrated that it would be difficult for that to happen. This group is probably much more coherent in some ways than some of the groups we've seen, because it has been together at least once a year for several years. It isn't important whether everybody in a group has. If some people, a fraction, have shared this together, that affects the whole group. And if temperatures do rise, those who are not completely caught up in their particular opinions should come in to defuse the situation a bit so that people could look at it. It mustn't go so far that the opinions come out, but where you can look at them. Provokes your own. That's all part of the observation. You become more familiar with how thought works. That is part of collective thought, people thinking together. At some stage we would share our opinions without hostility, and we would then be able to think together. Whereas, when we defend an opinion we can't. An example of people thinking together would be that somebody would get an idea, somebody else would take it up, somebody else would add to it. They thought would flow, rather than there being a lot of different people, each trying to persuade or convince the others. In the beginning, people won't trust each other. But I think that if they see the importance of the dialogue, they will work with it. And as they start to know each other, they begin to trust each other. It may take time. At first you will just come into the group bringing all the problems of culture and the society. Any group like this is a microcosm of society, it has all sorts of opinions, people not trusting each other, and such. So you begin to work from there. People talk at first in a perhaps rather trivial way and then later less trivially. Initially they talk about superficial issues, because they're afraid of doing more, and then gradually they learn to trust each other. The object of a dialogue is not to analyze things, or to win an argument, of to exchange opinions. Rather, it is to suspend your opinions and to look at the opinions, to listen to everybody's opinions, to suspend them and to see what all that means. If we can see what all of our opinions mean, then we are sharing a common content, even if we don't agree entirely. It may turn out that the opinions are not really very important, they are all assumptions. And if we can see them all, we may then move more creatively in a different direction. We can just simply share the appreciation of the meanings. And out of this whole thing, Truth emerges unannounced, not that we have chosen it. If each of us in this room is suspending, then we are all doing the same thing.
We are all looking at everything together. The content of our consciousness is essentially the same. Accordingly, a different kind of consciousness is possible among us, a participatory consciousness, as indeed consciousness always is, but one that is frankly acknowledged to be participatory and can go that way freely. Everything can move between us. Each person is participating, is partaking of the whole meaning of the group and also taking part in it. We can call that a true dialogue. Something more important will happen if we can do this, if we can manage it. Everybody will be sharing all the assumptions in the group. If everybody sees the meaning together of all the assumptions, then the content of consciousness is essentially the same. Whereas, if we all have different assumptions and defend them, each person is then going to have a different content, because we won't really take in the other person's assumptions. We'll be fighting them, or pushing them away, trying to convince or persuade the other person. Conviction and persuasion are not called for in the dialogue. The word, convince, means to win, and the word, persuade, is similar. It's based on the same root as are, suave, and, sweet. People sometimes try to persuade by sweet talk of to convince by strong talk. Both come to the same thing, though, and neither of them is relevant. There's not really coherent or rational. If something is right, you don't need to be persuaded. If somebody has to persuade you, then there is probably some doubt about it. If we could all share a common meaning, we would be participating together. We would be partaking of the common meaning, just as people partake of food together. We will be taking part and communicating and creating a common meaning. That would be participation, which means both, to partake of, and, to take part in. It would mean that in this participation a common mind would arise which nonetheless would not exclude the individual. The individual might hold a separate opinion, but that opinion would then be absorbed into the group, too. He might or might not keep his opinion, but his meaning would be seen. However, insofar as people have opinions that they defend, or assumptions that they defend, there is something that interferes with creativity. If you are defending an assumption, you are pushing out whatever is new. Thus everybody is quite free. It's not like a mob where the collective mind takes over, not at all. It is something between the individual and the collective. It can move between them. It's a harmony of the individual and the collective, in which the whole constantly moves toward coherence. So there is both a collective mind and an individual mind, and like a stream, the flow moves between them. The opinions, therefore, don't matter so much. Eventually we may be somewhere between all these opinions, and we start to move beyond them in another direction, a tangential direction, into something new and creative. Now, that would be the ideal situation. I've painted the ideal picture. But as we start, you'll find, of course, that it doesn't happen. That's often the case in dialogue woo, the thing that seems to make sense, which looks coherent and right, 
doesn't work when we try it. The thing that doesn't make sense is what does seem to work. You can notice the similarity of the difficulties within a group to what we've talked about in the past relative to the conflicts and incoherent thoughts within an individual. The individual would have to suspend his assumptions, and so does the group. There is another factor in a group, though, because collective cultural assumptions come into a much greater extent. And in a large group like this, many subcultures also come in. A society is a link of relationships that are set by people in order to work and live together. Rules, laws, institutions, and various things. It is done by thinking and agreeing that we are going to have them, and then we do it. And behind that is a culture, which is shared meaning. Even to say that we want to set up a government, people must agree to a common meaning of what kind of government they want, what's good government, what's right, and so on. Different cultures will produce different functions of government. And if some people don't agree, then we have political struggle. When it goes further, it breaks down into civil war. I am saying society is based on shared meanings which constitute the culture. If we don't share coherent meaning, we do not make much of a society. And at present, the society at large has a very incoherent set of meanings. In fact, this set of shared meanings is so incoherent that it is hard to say that they have any real meaning at all. There is a certain amount of significance, but it is very limited. The culture in general is incoherent. And we will thus bring with us into the group or microcosm or microculture, a corresponding incoherence. If all the meanings can come in together, however, we may be able to work toward coherence. As a result of this process, we may naturally and easily drop a lot of our meanings. But we don't have to begin by accepting or rejecting them. The important thing is that we will never come to truth unless the overall meaning is coherent. All the meanings of the past and the present are together. We first have to apprehend them, and just let them be. And this will bring about a certain order. If we can work this through, we will then have a coherent meaning in a group, and hence the beginning of a new kind of culture, a culture of a kind which as far as I can tell, has never really existed. If it ever did, it must have been very long ago, maybe in some groups in the primitive Stone Age conditions. I am saying that a genuine culture could arise in which opinions and assumptions are not defended incoherently. And that kind of culture is necessary for the society to work, and ultimately for the society to survive. Such a group might be the germ of the microcosm of the larger culture, which would then spread in many ways, not only by creating new groups, but also by people communicating the notion of what it means 